This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Many of us in the older generations lived on board games when we were younger, even though that may have changed to a degree in the internet age. Board games still very popular, and the love of them is seemingly being passed down generation to generation. Tristan Donovan looks at the history of board games in his new book, It's All a Game. And Tristan joins us on the phone right now. Tristan, welcome. Hi, Dan. Hi, great to have you sir. here, sir. Uh, it was an interesting book to go through. And, and for the listeners, your love of board games came really from where, as, as a young boy? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Our, our family played board games every Sunday. Um, it's a really big thing, you know, so we'll have dinner and then we'll sit down and play games like Monopoly or the Game of Life. So it's very much part of my childhood. So what's the status of board games right now? They're having a big revival. So at the moment, um, there's a new sort of wave of games coming through, like Settlers of Catan, Ticket to Ride, Pandemic. And these have really sort of grown out of a slightly different design philosophy for board games that originated in Germany. But it's now led to much bigger sales of board games. Um, board game cafes are opening in cities all across the world. And so it's really sort of bringing in a new sort of generation to board games after a few years where it looked like they were going to be sort of cast aside in favor of video games. Which is interesting because the Internet has obviously had such a uh, uh, an important role in our society. So, I mean, there has been an impact, but to a degree it, it, is, it has been taken away a bit. Yeah, and the internet's also helped board games. I mean, the the new games that are becoming really popular were first spread about them through the internet. Um, people weren't aware of the games that were being made in Germany, like Catan. It was the internet that helped spread word of that to North America and the rest of Europe. And then also on Kickstarter now, um, Kickstarter's actually there's more funding for board games on Kickstarter than there is for video games. So it, it's actually sort of been quite helpful in reviving interest in board games by letting people know about what's new and also providing new funding stream for board games. What's interesting is that when you think about this this genre of entertainment, I mean, it has such a long and storied history, and we're talking basically hundreds of years, how, how board games have, uh, have impacted people's lives. Oh, yeah, get, get thousands of years. I mean, it's we, we were playing board games before we had the written word. I mean, they're, you know, we, we don't even know when the first board game was or when it began. It's so old. Um, you know, and we've had things like chess, and which go back hundreds of years, um, backgammon, which also goes back hundreds of years. So, you know, board games have very much been a part of human culture for, you know, since the days of ancient Egypt to the very latest. When you think about the, the, the marketing of the games in, in kind of the, the modern era, era, and I guess we start, you know, from Monopoly's time in the 30s on up, uh, really the, the marketing ideas behind them w were to try and, you know, bring the family together and, and, and share, uh, you know, have a, have a shared experience. And, and obviously that was something that, you know, companies like uh, – uh, you know, with Monopoly and all in the game of life, th they were very successful in doing that for many, many years, and they still are today. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, the new wave of games hasn't cast aside any of the old favourites. They're still selling very well. Um, yeah, and I think board games do, do have that sort of social side, that face-to-face kind of bringing people together, which is fairly unique. Um, you know, video games, as you know, the, the obvious rival, they connect people online, but you don't get the body language, you don't get the eye contact, you lose a lot of the communication. Um, and so so I think there's something about board games bringing us together around one table, kind of everyone focused on that task, not distracted by what's happening on some social media or on their phone. It's all everyone focused on that game, playing together, seeing seeing the whites of each other's eyes. You talk uh, about a, a wide range of games in this book, and, and obviously when people think games, they think about, as I mentioned, Monopoly, Game of Life, those types of things. But you also address chess and and backgammon and and some of those games as well because they they are board games there's no question about it and the successes that they have had over the over the many decades yeah so i mean sort of backgammon's an interesting one i mean it's had phases of huge popularity i mean it's still very popular in the middle east and always has been but it's had stages where it was really popular in north america so um, in the 30s, it had this boom when it got attached to gambling. Then it went out of favor, and people joked about it as the spinach of in- in-game sports because so there was so little interest. And then you had the 70s, where it became cool again, and Mick Jagger and Tina Turner and mm. all these kind of big, glamorous stars were going to Las Vegas to play backgammon for big money. And, of course, today, I mean, it's back to where it was. It's kind of... A, this forgotten game on the back of the checkers board. Is is Monopoly probably the most successful game of all time? <clears throat> Certainly the most successful branded game of all time. So I guess chess or may, yeah, probably chess or maybe Go um, would be the, the most popular ever. If But of course, in terms of branded commercial games where we can measure the sales, right. definitely Monopoly. We're joined uh, on the phone by Tristan Donovan, who is the author of the book, It's All a Game. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. It, it is interesting, though, that with the with the, the way that Monopoly has gone, especially in the last 20 or 30 years, how that brand has been able to expand and use other brands to build that game up. I mean, we see Star Wars versions of Monopoly these days, baseball versions, uh, different cities. I mean, I, most most major cities have their own Opoly, you know, you know, these days. I mean, the the branding part of it has just exploded, and maybe it's, it's just the modern-day thinking of, of marketers to a degree. Yeah, and I think Hasbro, which is sort of owns most of the big family games is, has got very good at doing this, not just with Monopoly, but it's done it with Risk. Um, you've got Star Wars Risk. You've got um, sort of Simpsons versions of the Game of Life. <clears throat> Sorry, excuse me. Um, and essentially, it's, they've got very good at merchandising it and cross-fertilizing it with other brands to retain interest. So, um, yeah, Hasbro has got very good at that, and I think Monopoly led the way. And See, having the streets around the board made it very easy to make a local version of Monopoly. I mean, all you're really changing is the paper on top of the cardboard.
But it is interesting that Monopoly does have that dubious past uh, in terms of its development. Uh, who actually developed it? Who, you know, kind of claims that they developed it? The story behind whether or not it truly was Atlantic City or not. I mean, that's a that's a great piece of history in this industry. Yeah. So, I mean, Monopoly was really the last folk game. So board games tended to be like folk music. You know, they would be created by people passed down generation to generation, changing all the time. And Monopoly was really the last of those. So the actual origin point was a game called The Landlord's Game, invented in 1902 by a woman called Elizabeth Maggie. And it was a protest game, actually. It was basically against um, people profiting just from owning land. Um, It was there to show the injustice that if someone owned all the property, everyone else would end up destitute. Um, So it was actually a criticism of property ownership and people being allowed to profit just from renting um, out their land. So this game wasn't very popular, but it spread around sort of academia. People would see it, make a copy, they'd change it a bit. You know, the street names changed, community chess cards got added along the way, and eventually it ended up in the hands of a man called Charles Darrow, who turned it into Monopoly and made it a commercial game that we know now. Well, Game of Life is another one that you talk about, which has a a long history, which I didn't realize that that, that has a, a history back to England as well. Yeah, I mean, that, that sort of originated with the idea of a game called The Mansion of Happiness is a very puritanical kind of version of Candyland, I guess, is the simplest way to describe it. And Milton Bradley played this um, New England after an imported version. And this inspired him to make a similar game called The Checkered Game of Life. And again, it was very religious in its tone, um, which, of course, is very different from the game of life we know now, which was actually a sort of created in 1960 to mark 100 years since Milton Bradley made his first game. And, of course, that kind of continues now adjusting to the time. So the 1960 edition had things like you could find a uranium mine and you'll be celebrating it getting a windfall from that because at the time there was many incentives to go find uranium mines. Of course, today, if you found a bunch of radioactive ore under your back garden, you're not going to be very happy. Right. We're talking with uh, Tristan Donovan. He is the author of the book, It's All a Game, about the history of board games. Your comments welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Again, if you're not able to get to your phone, you're more than welcome to send us a comment on Twitter, and we will bring it up on the show at BizRadio111, B-I-Z Radio 111, my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y 21, or at Wharton Nose, W-H-A-R-T-O-N-K-N-O-W-S. Scrabble is another game that, that you talk about a lot and, and how that has developed uh, over, what, I guess about the last 70 to 80 years or so? Yeah, so it is, again, um, a game that came out and was sort of first conceived in the Great Depression, although it really sort of found its success after the war in the 1950s. And it was sort of derived partly from crossword puzzles. But I think what I found most interesting about Scrabble was the professional players, really, and how they look at it. So you you assume if you're a Scrabble champion, you know lots of words and you understand language very well. But actually, the opposite is true. It's all about maths for them. So they, they recognize letters as combinations of numbers, and they learn 
words just by their score. So, you know, the meaning of a particular word will be the amount of points it has on the board rather than having any idea what the actual word means in some yeah. cases. Well, in many cases, the the byproduct of these games is just the thought process that it takes uh, to to play the game and the mind development that that people actually get from them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think you know, sort of with, with games as sort of skill, a lot of it is about thinking ahead. It's about planning. Um, probability is obviously a very important thing in games where chance is an element. So, you know, in backgammon, yes, there's a skill element, but it's equally a, a game of probabilities and working out, well, you know, what's the probability that my next dice roll will allow me to do that versus my opponent. And, of course, when you're playing backgammon for gambling, then, of course, that becomes very important. Well, and that's kind of the element that, that you also touch on is, is the fact that these games, as they were first coming up, uh, were obviously very entertaining. But chess, to a degree, backgammon as well, they have they have developed their own element of gambling along the way. Uh, Washington uh, Square Park, which I believe is the, the place up in New York City, where uh, playing chess uh, was is it still is legendary up there. Yeah, absolutely. There's um, so there's lots of people who go to the chess plaza there, and they'll be sort of offering passes by to play them at chess. And you know, some of them are making money out of it. Um, person I went to play a game <laughs> made a good twenty dollars out of me. <laughs> I think I I was quite an easy catch. But <laughs> you know that that's always been the case. And ironically, um, chess actually began as a gambling game. Yeah. Um, when it originated in India during the early part of AD, um, it, it was a four-player dice game where people gambled on it. I mean, it's so far removed from chess as we know it today, but that's what it evolved from. Well, and, and just, it, it's a game that even though it is, it's it's not branded, and my son, who's eight years old, is playing chess now, and it, it is it's one of those games that, as I said, because it's not branded, it still has an unbelievable life for it. I mean, it's one of those things that you don't expect that it is going to slow down in any way, shape, or form. No, and I think it, you know, chess is here to stay. I mean, you, it's one of those games that has just survived centuries and centuries, and is. I mean, its rules are fixed now. It went through many centuries of revision. I mean, I can't imagine chess. Chess is going to change much in a hundred years' time from what it is today, as it used to do. But it, I think because of its sort of pure skill, it's easy to pick up, it's easy to play, it's quite mentally challenging, it's quite satisfying to win. There's so much room for improvement and to develop your skill. I, I think it's, it's always going to hang on now. We're talking with Tristan Donovan, author of the book, it, it, It's All a Game. Your comments welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. With, with the companies like, like Hasbro and, and Parker Brothers, are, are they at a point where they are truly still in the in the development phase of new games on an annual basis, or are they looking at the the core games that they have and looking for offshoots of them? Um, well, I mean, now, now Parker Brothers is part of Hasbro. Hasbro right. pretty much owns most of the iconic family games that um, were sort of big in the like Monopoly and Game of Life and Battleship and 
all the rest of them. Um, I, I think it's a mixture. They are looking to develop new games, but when you're working at the scale of Hasbro, those games have to sell a very large sum. So, I mean, a recent game they've come out with is Pie Faces. It's not really a board okay. game. It's all one plastic action kind of games. But, you know, it, it had to be a big hit. Um, Magic Gathering is a recent board game they've done. Again, likely to be a big hit. But they can't really, I think, compete, be bothered to <laughs> compete in the kind of, oh, can we sell 50,000 copies of this? It's, it's just too small fry for a company the size of Hasbro these days. So a lot of it's about kind of extracting extra value out of the game of life, a monopoly and these strong established brands that they already have. What do you think is is the societal impact on uh, on our culture right now with this kind of rebirth, uh, this boost again that that we're seeing from board games, uh, especially with the with the millennial generation and the impact that they are having right now? I I think it can have two things, and I, I'm not a millennial. I'm yeah. Generation X, so I mean, it's who, who knows if I can get into the headset of. Um, someone who's a millennial, but I think there are two big lessons that board games, the new board games are kind of teaching. One is cooperation. Um, games like Pandemic are a pure cooperative game. There are no winners. It's either everyone on the round table wins or everyone loses. And even a game like Catan, where you do have one winner, everyone has to work together to enable someone to win. So I think there's board games today are teaching a, a kind of lesson of there is a need for people to work together. You can't be the individualistic lone wolf and just tread on everyone else and succeed. You know, even winners need to kind of stand on the shoulders of others. Um, so I think that's one message they may be getting from games. And I think also that they'll be getting some access to just face, normal face-to-face -face interaction without you know, the distraction of smartphones or it happening via a screen. And I think I think that's healthy. I don't think it's necessary you have to kind of throw away your smartphone, but I think there are things we lose just by interacting virtually. You know, is you know, is even a Skype conversation, for example, you can't do eye contact and you lose communication within that. So I, th I think it's it's a positive thing that it gives a chance for people to act socially together face to face. We're talking with Tristan Donovan, author of the book, It's All a Game. I, I have to be honest, I, and I apologize for my ignorance, because I hadn't heard of Sellers of Katana. I mean, I am old school, and, and I have my Monopoly. Uh, uh, I have my Monopoly, and I have uh, all kinds of different games that I play with uh, with my kids, but Sellers of Katana is, is not one that I had heard of in the past. Give us a little history on this. Yeah, so it's... Um game invented in Germany. Um, it must have been about 1996. Um, spent about 10 years being very popular in Germany. And then before sort of breaking, starting to break through into the US. But it, it sounds much more boring than it actually is. But essentially, you're settlers on an island, and you get to basically claim land, and you grow sort of resources like, say, wood or brick, and using those resources, you can help build your little civilization on this island. And you don't have access to all the resources because you need to trade it with other players. So it's a bit of a trading kind of city-building game. Um, it's much more fun than I've properly described it. But essentially, this game became the 
very popular online, became very fashionable among pe- people in Silicon Valley. So um, companies like Facebook used to have Catan days and <laughs> just around sort of 2010. So it, it's taken a very long time for the game to start building up. And I think the current sales figures are about 15 million worldwide. So it, it's one of the games that's becoming a sort of new classic, if you like. It's getting up to the level of kind of Monopoly and game of life where it will keep selling for forever but it's it's been a long time coming it's so it's not surprising you haven't heard about it it hasn't had a big massive launch it's just word of mouth over a good 20 years now well i was going to ask you you know i mean with something like this and, and the development of the game how frequent is that type of time frame in the development of a new game these days I think the games get developed fairly quickly, so you know it could could be a year because games are still largely made by one person working on their own, maybe two people working together. So the game itself can be very quick, but games that actually become big hits um, from the ground up without being an established brand already are fairly rare. Um, I suppose in the last twenty years, there's possibly been four games that could be classes, you know, big hits, Catan's one of them, Pandemic, Ticket to Ride, Carcassonne, and they're games that have probably sold at, you know, at least over a million copies worldwide now. And you think, well, that, that's it in 25 years, kind of four million, four games that have sold in excess of a million, that's not very many. Um, so, board, you know, new super hit board games are quite rare, but they're because it's only one individual a lot of the time, you know, a game can sell a relatively small amount and still be worthwhile for that individual. Tristan, great book. Thank you very much for coming on today. Greatly appreciate your time. Thank you. All the best. Uh, Tristan Donovan. Uh, the book is It's All a Game. It is available in bookstores and online now. Uh, pick it up. It is, it's quite an interesting look at the history of, uh, of games, of board games uh, around the world. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.